The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Anissa Beta from the University of Melbourne School of Culture and Communication. In this episode, we will look into the effects of the pandemic to the children and vulnerable populations of Indonesia. Most schools and educational institutions have been closed for more than a year, forcing children to shelter in places that may not always be ideal. The pandemic has also hindered and affected different opportunities that children and vulnerable populations have to express their concerns and participate in public. To discuss that, we have Dr. Santi Kusumaningrum, the Director of Puskapa, or the Center on Child Protection and Well-Being at Universitas Indonesia. Welcome to the podcast, Santi. My pleasure to be speaking with you, Anissa. To start, I would like to discuss the policy paper Puskapa recently published, co-authored with Papanas, UNICEF, and Compact, titled Racing Against Time. Uh, it's a policy paper on the prevention and handling of COVID-19 impacts on children and vulnerable individuals. Could you please explain to our listeners the impact of COVID-19 to the lives of many Indonesian children, according to this policy paper? Yes. So this policy paper was... Uh, developed in early months of the pandemic, and it was launched in September of last year by the Minister of National Development Planning or the head of Papanas. The main argument of this paper is that uh, COVID-19 as a disease can, of course, affect anyone, but the way it transmits and spreads have demonstrated that some people would have less chance to avoid it, and by that same logic, less resources to manage their chance of survival and thrival. So based on that, uh, this paper highlights children and vulnerable individuals who even before the pandemic hit were already prone to having less access to basic services or were excluded from services and life opportunities in general in Indonesia. In addition, this paper discusses the way in which the responses to this pandemic need to consider new risks faced by these children and vulnerable individuals. So the risk can materialize in at least three ways. First is when children are affected directly by the disease. There have been few articles covering some news around our um, considerably high fatality rate among children. Personally, I can only say that we don't have enough data to comment further on that, but we know for sure that children were affected directly. Second is when children's caregivers were affected directly by the disease. This can cause uh, the loss of caregiving, support system, and sense of normalcy uh, due to, for example, mandatory isolation and uh, caregivers' unemployment, for example. Mm -hmm. That's why we include vulnerable adults uh, in the scope of this paper as well. Lastly, is when at-risk children face the consequences of the pandemic including, uh, for example, loss of income, especially for children who used to work to support their families, uh, limited access to safe spaces, increased risks of domestic violence, 
shifting learning practices because of you know the whole online school uh, processes and all while the availability and quality of basic and protection services operations are hampered by the pandemic at the same time in this paper uh, you and your co-authors also discussed the invisible populations of indonesia who are they that's a that's a million dollar question isn't it So to answer that, uh, we develop a conceptual framework to understand what we call structural vulnerability to identify vulnerable groups. Vulnerability occurs in three interrelated layers. This is what we developed through this conceptual framework. The first layer is when children and adults are lacking access due to poverty and remoteness. And I have to say that at this first layer, more and more, we have figured out more ways to identify them through data. Like we have better poverty data, for example, now, and also a better data in terms of pinpointing geographical disparities, for example. But the second layer is when children and adults do not receive a proper response from services that could match with their special needs. And this is when data becomes more complex to be obtained. The third layer is when children and adults uh, who are excluded from these services because of who they are and their social identities, be it gender identity, age, ability, ethnicity, or religion. So basically using this conceptual framework has really helped this paper in mapping Who are these vulnerable children and adults we're talking about? So we have three major categories, each indicating the subpopulations in focus. So in this paper, we outline that first are those we can estimate through existing data. For example, SUSANAS, the socioeconomic survey done nationally in the country. These people may not be invisible on a statistical map, but they can be vulnerable in realities. Under this category are, for example, uh, children, the elderly, and persons with disabilities in poor and extremely poor households. I have to say that uh, the government is quite good in responding to these group of people because immediately right after the pandemic, uh, if you're following the news from Indonesia, uh, the government just quickly uh, developed a new uh, additional cash assistance programs and social safety nets to to reach the these uh, categories of, of vulnerable people. The next subpopulation is uh, children, the elderly, and persons with disabilities without legal identity. And why this is important is because we know from uh, evidence from our other studies that not having a birth certificate or not having a single identification number uh, or an ICA in Indonesia can relate to uh, their not having access to further basic services. The the second are what we call the more invisible population. So they're probably uh, are captured in ad hoc program data, although it's very uh, fragmented and not integrated to the, the main population data. So under these categories are, for example, children in detention and correctional facilities or children living with caregivers who are incarcerated. The next under this category are children in institutional care facilities or called PANTI 
almost 90% of children in orphanages in Indonesia are still with at least one parent alive. So they are not there because they're orphans. They are there in these panties because of poverty. Usually their parents send them to panty to be able to access education. And also there's some this notion among parents that in this panty, their children will be better taken care of. The other subpopulation that I think are also very vulnerable are children who are not in Panti, Anissa, but they are registered in the Ministry of Social Affairs as children who are receiving assistance from social workers. And the reason why they're receiving assistance from social workers is because they were vulnerable before the pandemic happened. The next is children in boarding schools. This is, again, more challenging because there's no, you know, one sort of unified database around children in boarding schools. Uh, the next is homeless and street children and adults. And, of course, uh, asylum seekers in transit and refugees. And then the last one under this category are children and adults living in households with uh, risk of domestic violence, as I mentioned earlier. And the third is the most invisible population. And this is where the challenges are the biggest. So these are people who are undocumented because there has been no solution into registering them into a population administration database. So it's people who, you know, individuals who really have no trail of documents at all, but they are living here, they are here, they exist, but there's no way in starting to enter them into the system because, you know, the, the registration system as it stands really has no option for, for these kind of individuals. And also those who are stigmatized in the society, and this can include, you know, people with mental illness, minority groups, or people with special needs who are hidden by their, their family members. So what are the recommendations that you and your co-authors have to minimize the vulnerability and invisibility of these subgroups, especially the children? Yes. Uh, in the paper, we have a set of short and longer-term recommendations. But in a nutshell, the recommendation is to really take this pandemic as a starting point to start regoverning our population data, service deliveries, and at the end of the day, protection and welfare systems for children and vulnerable families. By population data, we mean administrative data that are collected through a vital registration process that counts everyone from birth throughout their life cycle until death, and that the data is interconnected with sectoral data. Our civil registration system must operate in a simple and affordable manner at the village or community level. It has to be inclusive and accountable in ways that individual data are managed by adhering to security and privacy principles, but at the same time, interoperable, at least with sectors where vital events take place. For example, to capture birth and death events as soon as they occur, civil registration sector has to work together with the health sector because it is within the health sector that most births and death would happen. And it's the only way 
to have our population administration data to be timely and accurate because as soon as something happened, uh, a newborn or a new death, then uh, their data would be immediately uh, captured. The same with marriage and divorce. So in Indonesia, marriage is registered. If you're a Muslim couple, you're registered with the religious affairs uh, sector. If you're a non-Muslim couple, you're registered with the civil registration office. But a divorce is registered in courts. And marriage and divorce are two also vital events that Uh, needs to be recorded to be able to maintain a understanding of your population because with marriage comes you know uh, the following needs to have immediately reproductive health services be available for them also this data can really immediately send a signal about okay what are the following needs about to happen after this event occurred. And lastly, migration, Anissa. And this is cannot be done without the civil registration sector works together hand in hand with local and village government. Uh, I'm sure you're following the news as well that during the first uh, months of the pandemic when the safety nets program are enrolled, there's this issues about, oh, uh, their, their ID card tells them that they're not Jakarta you know, citizens, they're, you know, some somewhere in central Java or East Java. And and how do we manage this? I mean, these kind of seemingly basic questions should be able to be anticipated by a more functioning population admin data. Uh, also, in for example, in 2019, because this policy paper looked at uh, 2019 and 2018, Susanas, for example, It was estimated that over 5 million children who are under five in Indonesia still did not have a birth certificate, which means over 5 million under fives were unregistered. And this might be, oh, it's okay, then maybe when it's time for them to register to school, then they can be captured by the system because they need to produce a birth certificate to be able to register to a primary school, for example. But at the same time, it means the country is missing the first five years of someone's life data, and this is very problematic. Also, over 1 million elderly and uh, around 400,000 people with disabilities did not have a single identification number or NICA. So they don't have the social health insurance then, the JKN or BPJS Kesehatan, because the the main requirement to register to JKN is for you to have your NICA registered on a family card. And if you do not have an NICA, then we can sort of predict that these people might not you know, be covered by the social health insurance scheme. So these are all strong signals that they might be some of the most vulnerable populations. So that was uh, about regoverning our population data. And the next is, uh, this paper highlights that the central and local government should set up a comprehensive protection and welfare system. And such a system operates through uh, a three-pronged approach, social protection, 
family support, and specialized protection. Under social protection, uh, frontline services and community involvement should be supported to help vulnerable children access health services, education, social assistance, and legal identity documents, and to assist their caregivers in accessing livelihood and financial services. Not only that, for vulnerable families, they should receive family support. And this is, Anissa, not to teach parents how to parent, because the government now has plenty parenting training programs. But essentially, this includes a provision of qualified social workers and community facilitators to assist caregivers care for their children, care for elderly under their uh, roof, and care for people with disability. And this can be done through home visits, referral mechanism, and case management. Lastly, the last prong is specialized protection, which includes access to services that can minimize the risk of harm faced by children, elderly, and people with disability, and to immediately respond to incidents of violence. And of course, as any policy recommendations, this work doesn't stop with publishing the report, right? But it needs to continue through advocacy and assistance in translating them into policy proposals and programs. And I would say that in relation to this policy paper, it's all work in progress. Mm. Has there been any indication from the government or from the ministries to work with Puskapa or the other institutions you wrote this report with to start working out the solutions or the recommendations? Mm, yes. Yeah, so especially the one regarding the the strengthening of the CRBS, the Civil Registration and Vital Statistics System. Actually, the, the Ministry of Home Affairs, uh, together with the Office of the President, KSP, and the Ministry of Planning, have been taking the quite a few initiatives in really trying to reform the whole system. Because I think the the government is now more aware of the importance of having such basic data. But at the same time, uh, it's not only the data that would inform uh, development further, but also the fact that without a, a legal identity document, some people would be blocked from accessing further services that would then help them to gain more life opportunities in a way. So yes, yeah, so uh, the, the work has started even before the pandemic. Of course, the pandemic happened and, you know, priorities uh, need to uh, refocus. But I think in the in the last couple of months, we see that the government is following up on this huge agenda, Anissa. So one of the, I think the recent optimistic news from, from this from this reform arena is that the president has adopted a presidential regulation on national strategy on improving civil registration and vital statistics. It was in 2019. It was supposed to be enrolled in 2020, but then the pandemic happened. And the last couple of months in, in 2021, the work picked up 
Uh, and now under the leadership of uh, Bapenas, the Minister of Planning, they are now establishing a national secretariat to be the hub of the implementation of the national strategy. So hopefully we'll see you know, some changes replicating in the next couple of years. I'm very hopeful. Yeah. We've talked about how Puskapa worked hard on identifying and mapping out vulnerabilities and invisibility of children and other subgroups of populations in Indonesia. Puskapa also worked on children and young people's participation in public. Could you explain to us why is it important for us to think about children's participation in public life? Child participation is not a strange concept to people who are familiar with child rights or people like you, Anissa, who have been working on on youth and and young people and uh, to people who are working on on child protection, like like us in Puskapa. But I think this concept is often misunderstood. So I believe that participation of children in decision-making processes that would affect their lives is very important. But it's not only to ensure that we listen to their thoughts and ideas, because those uh, that notion that we need to listen to children sometimes, or too often than not, sort of materialize in a very tokenistic way. And I'd like to invite everyone to steer away from that, because it's not only to ensure that we listen to children's ideas, but it's basically about facilitating an ongoing dialogue. Because I think these dialogues should be part of processes where both children or young people and the decision makers, it cannot it, it can also be happening in a private sphere as well, you know, in, in, in their in their homes or in schools, for example, but also in, in public spheres, that they can both children and the decision makers check each other biases. And this can only happen through conversations, right? We need to converse about what matters, like, for example, in terms of policy, why this policy matters, how are they going to implicate children's lives, how are they going to implicate adults' lives, and how to mitigate for negative consequences, because there's no such thing as perfect policy, and how to make sure that we can reach as many as possible to reap the benefit of those decisions. So as you can see from my very passionate answer that I do think child participation is really important because I believe, and this has been sort of embedded in Puskapa's work, that improving the lives of children is not and never exclusive about children. Improving the lives of children needs to include improving the lives of adults around them. But the work should be inclusive of children. So I think what we need to do is to continue to understand better what participation means, how to best put them into practice, and how to make the process as inclusive as possible. Of course, all of that require us adults to be willing to learn and adapt. You recommended dialogue and a real rethinking and reconfiguration of what participation in accommodation really means, not just in this tokenistic celebratory mode. But you and your co-authors have identified, as you explained very well just now, that there are 
structural vulnerabilities and different forms of invisibility that children and other vulnerable subgroups of the population are currently dealing with with the COVID-19 pandemic. Do you think that children and young people can still participate in the public life? So I think before I get to answer that directly, uh, now I'm thinking about why, because you mentioned structural uh, barriers, right? And we often sort of play around with these terms child agency too many times without considering that agency is also structural. So I think, first of all, we have to admit that there's a lot of biases in our thinking about children and young people. It takes, and it's going to take a constant effort of admitting bias and interrogating our own preconceptions about individuals who happen to be younger than us. And here's why it's difficult. So I'm not saying that it's always comes easy to me, but a part of the main arguments of child rights when the concept was incepted was that children cannot be held fully responsible for what happens in their life. I think that was a form of adults taking responsibility for children's lives, right? Was this wrong? Of course not. Children are dependent on their caregivers to the community around them and to the broader policy environment that shape their life opportunities. Adults who have more power should be held accountable in making sure that children are protected. But this sort of setup can lead to a misunderstanding when it translates to adults having unchecked power over children, or children are perceived as the weak, therefore clueless, and easily fall victims. Or that protection means keeping children you know, sterile from the outside world because they are clueless and weak. So I guess I'm saying that in this dynamic, although children have less power compared to adults, it doesn't mean that they don't have an agency. In fact, it is part of the adult responsibilities to facilitate those agency. And I think now it, it comes to what I think and what we think in Puskapa as the true meaning of child protection. At the end of the day, why do we protect children? We in Puskapa has sort of crystallized the idea of this. You know, we, we want to stay away from the jargons that, oh, to, so children can reach their optimum potential. I think that the reason why we're doing all this is that we want to allow all children opportunities to grow and thrive as individuals who can positively contribute to their communities, who can handle complex life problems, who are resilient, and who are able to care and protect other human beings. And these individuals are individuals who have a healthy agency, Anissa. So I think in a way I'm trying to say that acknowledging that children have an agency, which is the base of child participation, means that we need to work so the system facilitate healthy agencies. And second is to create an environment where children can make informed decisions. And it is when decisions are made based on their independent thinking their understanding about the consequences, and their knowledge about options available to them. 
So this environment must guarantee uh, children's access to information, but at the same time, provide them with critical thinking tools to choose, select, dissect, judge, and use those information. And, and creating such an environment can be what you and I do in our everyday lives, Anissa, right? And, and other common citizens do to assure uh, children in Indonesia their participation in public life. But of course, lastly, is to ensure that the rights of children to form and express an opinion are protected. We don't have to be an activist to uh, start fostering this kind of environment that can facilitate healthy agency in children. We can start in our own homes. Uh, teachers can start in classrooms. Uh, peers can start in their you know, uh, peer group activities. But again, I think just like when you're diving into an ocean, what you need is an oxygen tank and a gear. And the oxygen tank is the information. So I do not believe in sensor. I believe in free flow of information. But the diving gear is the tools that would enable children to select and judge what kind of information they would access and how to use those information. It's been great having you in this episode, Santi. Such brilliant answers to my question. Thank you so much. Thank you, Anissa, and thank you for having me. That was Dr. Santi Kusumaningrum, the director of Puskapa, the Center of Child Protection and Wellbeing at Universitas Indonesia. With her team at Puskapa, Santi just co-authored with Bapanas, UNICEF, and Compact, Racing Against Time, a policy paper on the prevention and handling of COVID-19 impacts on children and vulnerable individuals. Talking Indonesia returns on the 25th of March with my co-host, Dr. Gemma Purdy. You can find Talking Indonesia at Indonesia at Melbourne blog and wherever you get your podcasts. This has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.